Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Hello, nice to be with you again yeah. in the great book of <laughs> Isaiah. Isaiah, my favorite book in the Old Testament. So we're back in Isaiah. Um, and we last week we covered one through 12, or at least we tried to. <laughs> There's so much there. Um, and this week- We covered one through six, but today go. <laughs> we're going to probably only get to two or three chapters as well. You know, we, there's so many good ones. I'd rather focus on the good ones. Exactly. So again, the three questions where we really want to focus in on, how does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? I feel like um, these chapters today, um, 13 through 35, have a lot of history in them. And it's a little bit harder to see how they focus on Christ. But we still see these nuggets of prophecy that are just beautiful. Um, and we can always, if we are looking with a prayerful heart, and we're, you know, if we're following those key ideas that I Nephi gave us on how to look, you know, looking for the temple, looking for this Savior said, search the words, you know, be prayerful when you're doing this with the spirit of prophecy it comes out of 2 Nephi 25, you know, um, I think we can see more. And the blessing of these chapters is many of these chapters are also in the Book of Mormon, but they're much longer. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that because sometimes it's it's a little bit of a embarrassing subject when you're talking to someone about the Book of Mormon and they say all he did was just copy from the King James. Have you right. ever had that thought run through your mind or someone mentioned that to you? Or, uh, my last question was like, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah if we've already <laughs> I, I got the King, King James. James. You know, yeah. but it, I have to always remind myself uh Scriptures were so infrequently available in the ancient world. Right. You know, they were in a library that the king's people could check out kind of thing, you know, and or at the synagogue in the New Testament. If you were in a large, large city, you had several roles, but usually you just had one or two scrolls in your yeah. synagogue. And then you'd have to learn, you'd have to be literate, you'd have to have the opportunity to go in, and then it's hard to... Yeah, everything so, about it's hard. so, so this is a... It's a real opportunity for me to contribute, I guess, historically at Oxford, where, you know, arguably like the lecture itself or originated, um, um, at least the popularized. The idea was that they would get out these old tomes and read them, and then people would copy them down. As they were writing. As they, okay. were, as they were being Just read. Just as a scribe that's did where our lecture, in the scripture. Yeah, that's where our okay. lecture came from. So. This absolutely makes a ton of sense that this is just that tradition, yeah. right? Yeah, and I also feel like, as I mentioned last week, Nephi included Isaiah because he loved Isaiah. Isaiah to him was Joseph Smith. Isaiah to him was the greatest of all the prophets because he testifies so much of Christ, first coming and second coming, and he testifies of Nephi's people. And I'm just fascinated as I go carefully through. So one third of Isaiah is quoted in the Book of Mormon. And as I carefully line them up, I, I usually on my screen, I cut and paste the Isaiah chapters and the Book of Mormon chapters, and I line them up, but you can also just buy a book that's already done it for you, you know. Um, and I see which words are consistent and different. Uh, I am amazed well over half of the words have been changed. Um, the verses, well over half of the verses have have changes in them. And people like Vedder Trevedness and Ann Madsen and um, other scholars have actually counted up exactly how many verses there are. And of the 478 verses, this is John Svednes' research, um, cited in the Book of Mormon, 60%, 277 verses are changed, and some with significant insights. And the ones that are cut out that Nephi does not include are perfect um, to be cut out because they don't apply to his setting for his people or for the people that will receive the book in 1830. 
And I just, it again testifies to me that Joseph Smith was inspired, that Nephi was inspired, that this is an ancient text. He's not just copying out of the Book of Mormon. In fact, instead of the King James language in the Book of Mormon being an embarrassment to us, I feel it is a strength, it is an emphasis that that's exactly how we know that this is an ancient text. Because as we look at the Dead Sea Scroll version of Isaiah, we see some exact things from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were taken out of our King James version in the Book of Mormon. You know, in fact, when Brother Svetnus did his study, he he went through and he looks at the Dead Sea Scrolls, he looks at the Septuagint, he looks at several other ancient um, copies of the of the text and finds that 59% of the changes in the book, not excuse me, not 59%, the number 59 are better. Um, they're more accurate to the ancient text. Um, of these. So 59 verses within the Book of Mormon are more accurate than the... And I, I, I shouldn't have said verses there. I should have said of the variants. Of oh, the variants, okay. Yeah, of these variants. And then 126 are equal and 49 are less favorable because they're being changed for the vocabulary of Joseph Smith's people and time. You know, so he's they're, they're not quite as consistent as the ancient world's vocabulary, but he's trying to communicate something to his, his people. Um, but I'm really fascinated with the fact not only why Nephi and Mormon and Moroni and the Lord quote Isaiah, but how we can apply it now in these last days, because our job, according to the prophet now, is to gather Israel. And what can these chapters tell us? Well, they tell us the end from the beginning. We know the end of the story. They're filled with information on the last days. And today's chapters are some of the best of those prophecies on the restoration and I'm just really excited about diving in. Um, the first few chapters, though, 13, 14, 15, 16, are all historical. You know, the burden of Babylon and then Moab. And we keep going on and get a lot of historical information, which is why I really think it's helpful to keep a map open when you're reading Isaiah and keep a chart that has the kings, the local countries surrounding in the neighborhood. But there is one that is often translated by biblical scholars as just part of the wickedness of the Philistines in chapter 14. But as um, Latter-day Saints, we define Lucifer differently. We see that as a name for the great adversary premortally. And so as they're talking about this destruction, chapter 14, verse 11, the pomp is brought down to the grave um, we get then to chapter 12, this beautiful um, pre-mortal hint. Do you want to read 12? And I'm sure it has multi-levels of meanings. I'm sure it's not just pre-mortally, but it, I love it. Yeah. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? You know, I feel like um, we have kings who were wicked but had been good before. Mm -hmm. We see that in Judah, especially as well as in the unified Israel. But in verse 12, um, the little footnote there takes us to the Hebrew for Lucifer, which is morning star, son of the dawn. But we translate it as the ruler of the wicked world. You know, this, is, this is Satan, um, the ruler of the devil. And he is the source of why all these destructions are coming to pass. Um, and right in the middle of the destruction, Isaiah is prompted to say, 
All of this is because of the work of the adversary, that this earth has a wicked force on it that is stronger because of this righteous one who fell and chose not to follow the God. So that's, um, you just get these tiny little nuggets in the restoration that share the same vocabulary. It's fascinating to me to see the things that the Lord restored to Joseph. Chapter 15 is to Moab. 16 is to Lamb of the Ruler. That's actually um, Selah. It's over in Petra. Have you been to Petra in Jordan? That's I've not been to Petra. That's the, um, part of it is that area down there in Moab. Um, but as he talks about in chapter 16, four and five are beautiful. Do you want to, do you want to start with four? Yeah. Chapter 16, verse four, let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab, be thou a convert to them from the face of the spoiler for the extortioner is at an end. The spoiler ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. So Assyria's coming. We need your help. We need you to absorb some of these people, um, Moabites. But then he goes on and he changes it to a messianic prophecy in verse five. And the mercy shall the throne be established and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. So Christ is the response to Moab and everybody else who are not sincere. You know, um, verse six talks about the pride of Moab again. You know, he, it's just we go back and forth and back and forth. That's it just takes so much concentration and and focus. But I really feel like the prophecies of our Savior are tucked in in right when they are needed. I, and I assume in some of these, if they were visionary states, I don't know how he received his prophecies. Um the Lord assured him that he was going to come. There is going to be a righteous judgment, which then allows you to endure the, the difficult middle times. Seventeens um, to Damascus, and then we get all these woes in, in 18, a lot of dualistic prophecies, eighteens um, to Ethiopia. Um, and all of these were such important parts of Isaiah's time Chapter 19, the burden of Egypt, but I just want to focus on what's important to our time. And I'm sure that we could find multiple meanings on all of these, but because we just have a limited time, I'd like to just skip ahead to um, after the burden of Tyre and um, over to, to 24, because 24 to 27 is our apocalyptic or our, our second coming. You know, he's looking at the future, the time of the Lord when the earth will be cleansed. And um, it's a time, I feel like the destruction that occurred earlier in ancient Phoenicia um, uh, is consistent with what's going to happen. And that's why he can go back and forth so quickly. But it really, um, he starts out with this general destruction in verses 2 through 12. And in verse 5, it says, well, verse four, what, why they're destroyed. Do you want to read that? Yeah. Verse chapter 24, verse four. Yeah. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. Keep going. Keep going. The earth is also defiled under the, the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, broken the covenants. That means these people had made covenants and they have broken them. I, this is, this is why I say, this is us right here. Yeah. This is our day and age. The Lord is worried about the haughty people who are so proud that they have 
um, broken their covenants. They are the, not humble enough. This points to out hear to me, Lord. you know, because there's it creates this, this dissonance, this terrible feeling when your behavior is not in line with your standards, right? And the laws are the standards, and so they change the standards, change the ordinance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then that, of course, leads to breaking of the covenant. Yeah, and it's not just eschatological. It's not just second coming. It can be now. It can be in Isaiah's time. It can be in Nephi's time. You know, I, I just feel like these things are any time we're going to have a fall, we're going to see that. But in verse 22, we get this beautiful message of the spirit world and the afterlife as well. Um, do you want to skip up to, is there anything yeah. before verse 22 that you loved? I'll read verse 22. Okay. And they shall, uh, excuse me, and they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in prison. And after many days shall they be visited. Isn't that great? So the Lord is going to go um, during the time that he's in the tomb, according to Doctrine and Covenant section 138 and establish missionary work. And the prisoners who have been um, eagerly waiting to hear the message of the Savior will be able to start um, understanding it after the Savior's resurrection. And the temple work will allow them to be visited. And um, we believe that they did temple work um, or vicarious work, vicarious baptisms for the dead um, in the time of the apostolic church, but that that was taken from the world and restored again in Nauvoo with baptisms for the dead once again happening in the Mississippi River as people (laughs) ran out and jumped in the water, men for men, women for women. They were so excited. They just were eagerly about it. And Joseph had to... Okay, we need a record. We need this. But this hope that um, we can all have another chance to hear and learn and repent and change after this life as well is so encouraging. And um, I feel like the best part about having temples go up all around the world so close that we have the opportunity to go more regularly, if we can bless more and more people so that Israel can be gathered on both sides of the veil. it's it's an exciting, exciting verse. And then 25 continues on this beautiful millennial reign, this theme. And it's just a, I, I sort of feel like I'm back in the Psalms when I read chapter 25. I felt like it was a beautiful Psalm of praise. He's, um, he has this intimate relationship with God who's going to reign. Um, verse, verse four is just beautiful. For thou hast been strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in the distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when a blast of the terrible ones has a storm against the wall. I sort of feel like Isaiah is teaching us the higher law. Because do you remember on the Sermon on the Mount when the Savior says, blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me. Well, that's actually quoting from the Book of Mormon, isn't it? That's third Nephi, but um, who come unto me and they will find rest. And that's what he's saying here. If if you'll come um, to me, I'll be able to give you strength. And do you want to read verse 8? It's another beautiful. Yeah, chapter 25, verse 8. Yeah. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. Yeah. And, and then continuing on to verse 9. Um, about halfway through, we have waited for him and he will save us for this is the Lord and we have waited for him. 
and we will rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Uh, just such a powerful message of um, the importance of waiting for our Lord. And of course, the word salvation is the word uh, Jesus. Well, one's Hebrew, one's Greek. Um, that's Yeshua there. So double meaning on that one. And then, of course, we're back to the temple symbolism. Look at verse 10. Do you want to read that one? Yeah. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. So if Moab and Babylon represent the world, we have this uh, uh, opposition between the mountain and the world. But do you remember in, in the Doctrine and Covenants, where it, I think it's section 135, I'm not exactly sure, where the Lord defines what entering into the rest of the Lord is? He says, it's the same as, as receiving your exaltation. It's the same as your calling election. So in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, does not necessarily mean that everyone who goes to the mountain will receive the rest of the Lord, but that is the goal of becoming a kingdom of priests and priestesses, is so that someday we can prove ourselves worthy and receive the ultimate sealing of the Holy Spirit of promise and enter into the Lord's rest. And I think Isaiah, as well as all the prophets, had that experience and knew what they were speaking of firsthand. Anyway, I, I love the um, hope of the future as we're in the middle of the last days right now. Do you want to add anything else about 26? Um, 26? This beautiful reference to the resurrection is a rare find in the Old Testament. Um but maybe we should start with verse 3 before we go up to um, verse 9. you want to read 26.3? Yeah, 26.3. They will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Remember, peace is shalom. And so we'll keep him in shalom. His mind, if, if we can keep our mind stayed on the Lord, we can find peace in the most difficult times. I love the perfect peace part of it. Mm, that, mm -hmm. that adds something for me. It's the Lord. Me. The Lord alone yeah. is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Peace in the Lord. I think the perfect peace is an important part um, because it, it's it's the right kind of peace. There's lots of different kinds of peace. There's, you know, lack of noise, you could argue, is just <laughs> peace, right? But that doesn't mean your heart is still, right? This is, this is a very healing yeah. you know, and yearn for. And peace. he goes on and he continues to say how we get it. Look, look at yeah. the last half of verse eight. In the way of thy judgment, O Lord, have we waited for thee? The desire of our soul is to thy name, to be remembrance of thee. If we can remember his name, I, I feel like Isaiah has the higher law. This is the real meaning of the sacrament here. And do you want to read verse nine? This is yeah. that beautiful one about the righteousness or yearning to seek God. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Yeah. And then he gives the opposite in verse 10. The wicked will not learn righteousness. And that's why they're going to be destroyed. Um, and in verse 11, they will not see. And in verse 12, I can only ordain peace um, for those that have wrought our works. You know, peace will only come by those who have done it the Lord's way. But this continual mentioning of his name is so powerful to me and the sacred nature of our God that by his word and through his name, great things happen. I just think of if a worthy person, male or female, young or old, baptized or not, 
uses the name of Christ wisely. We can cast out devils. We can have the gifts of the Spirit. We can have the, you know, it's just a powerful blessing. Verse 13, um, by thee only will we make mention of thy name. You know, it's just um, really dear. But here's finally the resurrection verse 19. You want to read 26, 19? 26, 19. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as, a, as, as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Yeah, in contrast to all their false gods, Baal, Asherah, whomever we're talking about, we have this um, God that we believe who will rise from the dead, who will bring not only his own resurrection, but immortality and eternal life to uh, everyone else. So this, the righteous need um, our Savior. Such a beautiful message right there of the resurrection. Quite rare. And then um, we're almost getting to the my favorite chapter, but 27 is good too. The Lord is um, wrapping up about the last days here as he talks about um, his fury again in verse 4. But in verse 6, he shall cause them that they come out of Jacob to take root Israel is going to blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. I see that as what our prophet is asking us to do and what every member of missionary and strengthen the stakes where you live and spread your light in any way you can. Um, become a servant of God. That's verse six there. And bloom where you're planted, to quote a cliche. <laughs> um, but... Um, because in that day, it sounds like in verse 9, the iniquity of Jacob will be purged. You know, that's when this idolatry is finally going to go away. And our false gods that we worship, our status, even education. I just feel like there's so many things that we put before our God. Um, and materialism fills the next several verses as we talk about other things that get in the road of our our God that we put before him. And he uses the word Egypt in verse 12, both symbolically and literally, I think. Um, he's talking about the river of Egypt, but I see it as a message to the missionaries. Um, do you want to read 12? Yeah. Uh, 27, 12. Yes. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. So that harvest is going to come one at a time um, from one extreme to the next. And of course, at the time of Isaiah, you know, the, the chosen people have got to be the blue blood of a Jacob, you know, and yet these verses are stretching that view far beyond that. I love that. I love that reminder to be gathered one by one. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. it's, we so often think about, well, if we can't do everything, we, we do nothing. For some reason, that's just a human nature thing. I don't quite understand it. Um, but the gospel is always taught one by one. one, by one. Even when we do um, our ordinances for the dead, our vicarious work in the temples is one by one. Each person is accompanied to, into the presence of the Lord. And keep going in 13. This is our beautiful temple imagery here. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. And they shall come, mm -hmm. which, <laughs> and they shall come, which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. 
So in addition to that coming, we then get in the next chapter, remember there's no chapter changes, um, these woes, um, unfortunately, that come to those that don't. So drunkard Ephraim and the pride of the world, um, that's verse three, they're going to be trodden down. And then um, verse seven, the priests and the prophet have erred through strong drink, and they're going to be swallowed up with wine. So we have people who think that by getting high, you can prophesy, or or people who are um, not focusing on Christ, but are focusing on their own pleasures and their own, um, but it says, for the tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. You know, you're, they're so drunk, they become sick. But I see it also speaking about spiritual drunkenness because of this, the priests are the ones who are doing it. So they, they're, they're, in a, they're not listening to God's word. They're listening to the philosophies of men mingled with scriptures to quote a famous verse. Um, but finally, in um, these babes are weaned and um, in verse 13, line upon line, here a little, there a little, they might go, they're going to fall backward, they're going to be snared. But by line upon line, skipping up to verse 16, you want to read 16? This is a great one. Mm -hmm. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Yeah. Stay on the rock. Don't leave. If you're going to believe, be rooted, grounded on the rock of our Redeemer, to quote Helaman. Isn't yeah. that Helaman 512, the rock of our Redeemer? So this sure foundation, I love this precious stone, tried stone, especially in light of the fact that Jesus um, was probably a stonemason. You know, the right. word is not carpenter in, in Greek, it's it's tecton, it's a, it's a builder. He, he's probably a stonemason. And he is our rock. And this is this is our savior inspiring Isaiah to write these words. And he's describing his future mortal life. I just love I love verses. I love the imagery here. Mm-hmm. It, the poetry again shows up for me. Mm-hmm. But this last line really makes it personal, I would say. He that believeth shall not make haste. Referencing these stones, these cornerstones, this this foundation. For Be me, that's, that's what it, it means mm-hmm. to have faith. Is like you know, there's all these terrible things that are happening that are really scary, right? Um, and, and the Lord and Satan does that. This is how he intimidates or tries to look at Moses, right? He tries to scare you. Well, and he gives people now anxiety and other things. Exactly. Yeah. But if you're built on the stone, a tried stone, right? This is this is. Mm-hmm. There's going to be no been, fishers in it. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is this is uh, the masons have been very tried careful. And true, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very square. Um, and it uh, for me, that's how I know if I'm on the I'm on a good foundation when I'm not scared, right? No, oh, that's and I'm not in a hurry. Um, the Lord uh, will take care of you. Uh, I do the work with urgency, but not not haste. Right? Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to make sure chapter twenty nine gets our very best time. Um, because of the parallels in the Book of Mormon and in the latter days. And instead of the 24 verses we see here in Isaiah, in 2 Nephi 27, there's 32 verses. <laughs> so this was very important um, to, that we see what things were taken out. So as I put these two side by side, uh, the, the things that are taken out are all about the detailed prophecy of the second 
the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, the marvelous work and the wonder. And it's fabulous what we have in Isaiah. I love verses 11, 12, 13 that talk about the Book of Mormon. But when I see what's in the second Nephi, chapter 27, I just get so excited thinking about Joseph and Oliver translating this right. and coming upon the fact that there's going to be three witnesses yeah. and things like that. Just so excited while they're translating this because both of these men had read their Bibles their whole their whole life. I assume that Isaiah was not unfamiliar to them, but so exciting to be able to have these additional verses, you know, um, eight verses added, uh, just powerful. And I also notice, as I said before, the, the things that are changed in the Book of Mormon are so important. These first two verses talking about woe to Ariel, Ariel is is Jerusalem. They're the Jews, I mean. This is referring to the Judah, Judah, at least in most biblical scholars' interpretation. So those two verses are taken out when you look at um, 2 Nephi 27, and then it starts with verse three that would have applied better to the time period of Nephi. And as we go down through here and we look at the fulfillment of these that have come past, I just get excited. And um, Joseph had already had most of this fulfilled by the time he translated in the Book of Mormon. So I'll just start with some of the Book of Mormon verses that precede Verse 11, because here... I, th I think we do need to, to mention something in oh, yeah, context ahead. for the translation. Please, please. So this is 2 Nephi, um, and but he didn't start with First and 2 Nephi, right? Okay, thank you. So as Joseph's translation is coming to pass, he the 116 pages, which was the book of Lehi, are lost. And then he returns with Oliver Cowdery, with his turkey quill, to an intense you know, 60, 70, 80-day period um, where they are doing this blitzkrieg. They start in what was Mosiah chapter 3. Right. It's now our Mosiah chapter 1 because the others were all lost. He goes through Moroni, does the words of Mormon and the title page. The title page was there. He has the title page published. We know all this because it's written in people's journals and accounts. Um, the title page is then published, and then he translates the small plates. They're at the end. So he doesn't come to this until after much of this has come to pass. That's right. And then he puts these back in at the beginning because chronologically. Because chronologically sense. he's missed it. And of course the Lord knew that and he told him and they had it all. Okay. Our God so with, knows everything. It's all going to work out. No matter how bad your life is, it's going to work out. Look at Isaiah 29. It's going to work out. The so Lord within that context, let's go back to Yeah. Okay. Isaiah. So we talk about this book, but I'm going to start in 2 Nephi 27 verse 6. The first five verses all talk about the darkness of apostasy that's covering the earth. Mm -hmm. So the earth's in this the state of, of not knowing who God is or the right God or anything. And then in verse six, which we do not have in Isaiah, and it came to pass that the Lord God shall bring forth unto you the words of a book, and they shall be the words of them which have slumbered. And behold, the book shall be sealed, and in the books there shall be revelation of God and the beginning of the world to the ending thereof. Now, that is the part we don't have. That's the sealed portion. Remember, Nephi, uh, when Joseph Smith is describing it, he says, I'm only able to do a small portion of this. The rest of it is sealed. I am not allowed to touch the rest of it. I'm just doing this. Small. So this huge chunk of 60 to 80 pounds, depending on who's giving you the definition of how much the gold plates weighed, the gold plates are filled with much of it being sealed. And um, continuing on in verse 7, 
Wherefore, because of this, they are sealed up. The things which are sealed up shall not be delivered in the day of the wickedness and abominations of the people. That's our day. Wherefore, the book shall be kept from them. Um, and then skipping down, it talks about the book in the book again. The, the book shall be delivered to a man. Um, but in verse 10, the words that are sealed up shall not be delivered. Neither shall be delivered the book. For the book shall be sealed by the power of God. And the revelation which was sealed thereup shall be kept in the book. Um, and then it talks about over the due time of the Lord, which the due time of the Lord is what most of us are waiting for. But I feel the due time of the Lord is often when we are ready. The I Lord's agree. timing is our preparation. He's just waiting on us to get our acts together here. Anyway, it's going to come forth. And we're going to reveal these words to the end of the earth. In verse 11, the day cometh when the words of the book, which were sealed, shall be read upon the housetops. That is our internet. That is our <laughs> dishes, that uh, satellite dishes that we have. It's however you want to think of it, a radio, whatever. But they are going to be read by the power of Christ, and all things shall be revealed to the children of men, which ever have been known unto the children of men. And then in verse 12, do you want to... Um, Pick up the three witnesses. Wherefore, that day when the book shall be delivered to the man whom I have spoken to read the book shall be hid from the eyes of the world, the eyes of none. Behold, save it be three witnesses shall behold it by the power of God. And besides them, the book shall be delivered. There shall be testified of the truth of the book. Um, it continues on in verse 13. Save it be a few according to the will of God. So we've got the three, nobody else. Oh, maybe a few. You know, it just keeps right. adding on there. And this is when everyone starts getting ecstatic about the opportunity to see this thing. And so we get all the Whitmers interested, Martin Harris interested, Oliver, as I'm sure, just begging the Lord uh, right about now it, that if he could be one of those after his great sacrifice. Um, and then in verse 14, I'm still in Second Nephi. Wherefore, the Lord God proceeds to bring forth the words of the book out of the mouth of many witnesses, as seemeth him good, and he will establish his word. I almost see as if he is seeing this vision, and he's, he's losing count because there's, there's Mary Whitmer in there. You know, there's other people that we don't have as the official witnesses who definitely saw the book. And we're told that um, even Lucy Max says she did. I, I don't know if that was literal or, or figurative, but she claims it in, in her writings, at least. And then finally, um, we're going to jump back to, into Isaiah. And um, we start now in Isaiah um, chapter 11. You want to read there? Or not uh, chapter 11, 29, actually, verse, 29 11. verse 11. Thank you. 29 verse 11. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. There's a little bit difference, but it's very similar in Second Nephi. And the learned said, bring hither the book, and I will read them. And now because of the glory of the world, to get gain, he said this, and not for the glory of God. And then shall the learned say, I cannot read it. And he couldn't. I don't know if you remember that, but um, Charles Anthon, Samuel Mitchell, anyway, he takes him to three people. One's in Albany on his way, and then he goes to Columbia University, and the professor and Dr. Mitchell, um, Professor Charles Anthem, um, no one in the United States read Egyptian. And this wasn't even written in Egyptian. It was Reformed Egyptian. You know, the the um, Rosetta Stone had been discovered, but it hadn't been published broadly yet. You know, we don't have that. Um, 
So the Rosetta Stone had been cracked. We had been making progress on Egyptian, but it wasn't available here. And not there were only five Americans in 1829 who had been studied in Europe and knew the classical languages of Greek and Hebrew, but no one in America at that time spoke Egyptian. And they couldn't read it anyway, if it were ancient, you know, but they did speak Sumerian. You know, we did have these five great scholars of the ancient classics languages, but nobody could have read it. Okay, keep going. I'll stop interrupting. I'm sorry. All right. So we are on verse 12. Yes. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Wherefore the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. That's the problem. Their fear towards God is actual fear. That was part of the challenges of some of the Reformation is they misunderstood who God was and they learned fear from him. These are the days when, you know, on the Sabbath, you count your steps and you not only count your steps, but you aren't allowed to do anything but sit and read your scripture. I I just feel like the fear of God it motivated a lot of people for many generations, but it's it's wrong. Mm. The fear was coming out of a a misunderstanding of who God was. Yeah. We need to have respect and honor and love. And definitely let's fear God's judgments, but let's not fear him because he thinks we will all be damned unless we will praise his name. I think that's a misunderstanding. I think back to verse 11 from last, uh, sorry, chapter 11 in Isaiah from last week when the, with the prophecy of the Savior and it lists all of his qualities, the spirit mm. of wisdom and understanding. Mm. And then it goes into the fear of the Lord. It's like, therefore the fear of the Lord. That is what the fear of the Lord should be, right? This, this, this sense of the spirit, the spirit teaches you the proper way to yes. respect the commandments. And obviously and to be Isaiah motivated. himself, when he has that vision of the Lord has great fear. And that's why he asked, yeah. He says, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's, so, that's so great. The, I like that. The spirit is where you can understand the proper place of yeah. the, the justice of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fear towards me is taught by the precepts of men. Last line 25. That's powerful. But he wants that changed. And that's why we need this book. And that's why this book is so important. Verse 26. Keep going. Verse 26. Here we go. Drum roll. <laughs> I'm in 2nd Nephi, 27. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, sorry, Isaiah 14, uh, 29, 14. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. And that marvelous work and a wonder is the Book of Mormon. And it becomes a favorite phrase for the Book of Mormon in the earliest revelations that the Lord gives. Um, I'm just thinking of section four. You know, we're about to come forth a, a great work. But these verses here have been put to music in um, the Restoration, and I just love them. Um, a marvelous work and a wonder. What a blessing to live in a day and age when we have those words that we can understand the fear of God in the right way of, of reverencing, when we can uh, learn truth. I see the Book of Mormon is absolutely imperative correct the false doctrines that were in the world. As a 19th century religious historian, I have read and been swamped in the falsehoods that were being taught at that time. And the Book of Mormon clarifies them. Check, 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 check. We are so blessed to have not only the restoration then, but a living prophet now to guide us, to prepare us towards the last days. And section 29, I mean, excuse me, Isaiah 29 
um, prophesies of that great coming forth of that sealed book. We better let you study your Isaiah on your own for the rest (laughs) of it. And we'll see you again next week for the um, Suffering Servant chapter, starting in Isaiah 42. God bless you. you. Thank you.